Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. One of the things I wanted to get to, which we'll do today, is I wanted to just talk briefly about non-harm in the Dharma, because I know this has been a confusion for me for a really long time, continues to be actually. Uh, I think it's just the human experience, but talking a little bit about the ethics of nonviolence in the Dharma and hopefully just giving you a few frameworks to consider the question. <laughs> As I said the last few weeks, these topics in the Dharma that challenge us, challenge us for a reason. They are difficult to understand. They invite us to reconceptualize what it is to be happy. They encourage us to look at the heart-mind in a very different way than we're used to and to live in a very different way. So it's natural in this overturning of values that the Buddha talked about that we're going to find ourselves confused and frustrated at times or triggered by certain things in the Dharma that we just can't seem to get our mind around or agree with for that matter. And that's fine. That's the whole process of exploration and the invitation to discernment and investigation is all about the process of awakening. It's about not knowing and being comfortable with exploring and figuring it out along the way. So the one that's really uh, been rough for me from the beginning is just taking precepts and particularly not understanding what did the Buddha say about non-harm. So what I did was I gathered together a few uh, famous, if you will, quotes that give us some insight into how the Buddha saw nonviolence as a part of his practice. I read this amazing article. I will include the article link in the podcast if you want to click on it. Uh, you could go to the podcast once I get this Dharma talk up. And the the article was by Paul Fleischman, and he is a Goinka teacher, teacher in the Goinka tradition. And I believe he wrote a book called Karma and Consciousness, if I'm not mistaken. But the, the article he wrote that I had found was held, I think, on the Insight Meditation Center website in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it was about uh, comparing the Western idea of pacifism and the Buddhist idea of non-harm. And he has some beautiful, absolutely beautiful explanations of these ideas. So I'm going to get the link for you and put it into the podcast because it's well worth reading if any of this I talk about tonight is interesting to you. The article is quite interesting and apparently he uh, expanded his essay into a small book. So if it even interests you more, uh, the Pariyati bookstore uh, north of here in Washington has it, it looks like. So I'll give you more information on that. But I took some inspiration from there and I have some quotes from him that I think you'll like. So non-harm. How do we do this? How do we live a how do we live a life of non-harm, right? How do we live a life that is blameless and filled with love and compassion all of the time when so much of the time we're being triggered and agitated by fellow human beings, not to mention fellow circumstances, right? It's just tough even with the best <laughs> even with our best intentions, 
not harming ourselves and others is a tall order for human beings. So how do we process this in our practice? I just wanted to remind us that when we think of non-harm in the Dharma, oftentimes the first thing we think of is wise action. So in the eight folds of the eightfold path, we have a wise action fold of the path that essentially invites us to take precepts in various ways whose primary intention is not to harm, not to harm in thought, in word, in deed, not to harm in our speech, in our action, in our livelihood. So we know that when we talk about non-harm, that's kind of the part of the path we're basically landing on. We're landing on this place of precepts of skillful action and with this invitation to make some, if you will, vows, right? Some commitments to not act in a particular way, or if you prefer the more positive version, to act in a particular way towards ourselves and all beings. So the, the main ones that, of course, we're invited to take on are refraining from taking life, of course, refraining from stealing or taking things that are not freely given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. Those are the three primary ones we see under wise action. And then there's wise speech, which is its own category, and wise livelihood, which also are basically ethical principles as well. One of the things that is often not talked about are the details that the Buddha provides under the idea of not taking life. So I just wanted to throw these in here in case you haven't heard of these before. So <laughs> I think it's interesting how they set this up. So there are three things that the Buddha talks about in terms of not taking life. So the first thing is knowing that the being is a being. So the example given is if you step on an ant and you think it's a speck of dirt or a stone, that doesn't count as harm in the sense of intentional harm because you didn't think it was a being to begin with. So this is a question that students have obviously asked, and so the Buddha felt his you know, obligation to clarify that you have to know the thing is a being when you are acting. The other thing you need to know is that your action will cause harm. You need to know going in that what you're doing is about to cause harm to somebody. So an example of this is that if you have a mosquito, as I did the other day, uh, eating me alive, and you swat away the mosquito without the intention of killing it, if you just gently brush it away, that is not intentional harm. But if you accidentally kill it, even if you, so if you accidentally kill it and there wasn't the intention, that is not what the Buddha is talking about. So what we see is that you can accidentally do harm and that's really not what the Buddha is talking about. What the Buddha is talking about is intentional actions, actions where we do harm and we know we're about to do it, but we do it anyway because we're humans and this is what humans do. So these are two things the Buddha says. You have to know that the being that you're about to harm is in fact a being. You have to know that your actions are going to harm it. If it's an accident, that's not the same thing. The other thing the Buddha says is this being that you do harm to has to be visible with the naked eye. Has to be visible with the naked eye. And part of the reason that the Buddha says this is at the time of the Buddha, there were spiritual traditions in which there was concern that breathing in and out or walking around, you're just crushing microorganisms and that would be considered to be an, a harmful act. And so the Buddha acknowledged, yes, that's harmful, but the pragmatics of living a life without doing any harm at all were just too grave 
for the Buddha to put into this part of his path. So he just said, look, you have to be able to see it. If you can't see it, it's nearly impossible to make it practical. It's not a practical ethic. But there were people who carried little brooms and would brush the path in front of them as they walked because they did not want to hurt small organisms. So there was a precedent for this question at the time of the Buddha. I believe some of the Jain traditions did this. So non-harming. We've got this wise action part of the path. Now, I think it's important also to remember that it's not just about non-harming in the sense of actions, like physical actions or even speech. There is a deeper commitment that the Buddha is asking here. And if you remember that before wise action in the Eightfold Path, we have wise intention, or also known as wise resolve, but wise intention. So not only are we committed to acting in a particular way, we're committed to reflecting moment to moment on how we intend to show up in the world in this deep commitment to a lifestyle of being in the world in a particular way. And in this part of the path, there are three things that we commit to. One is letting go, particularly letting go of our dependence on sensuality. We turn inward to find inner peace. We make a commitment to compassion. Compassion is, as the Buddha says, an antidote to harm. Compassion is what arises in us when we see suffering and calls to our heart to end that suffering. The idea of not harming, but it's this compassion that wells up in us. We make this commitment to be a compassionate being so that when we see the suffering of others, we are called to action, that we're called to help and we're called to serve, particularly and also ourselves, right? When we see harm being done to ourselves. And the last thing we're asked to do is to be a person of goodwill, to walk in the world wishing well for all beings. We seek to illuminate negativity and we seek to replace that negativity with letting go compassion and goodwill. So from the very beginning of the path, it's important to know that non-harm goes all the way down, right? If Buddhists believed in a soul, I'd say it goes all the way down to the soul. <laughs> so this non-harming commitment goes all the way down to intentionality, that we walk in the world and show up in the world with this intention not to harm ourselves and not to harm others, which manifests in a deeper way in the precepts of physically not harming other beings. There is this idea in spiritual traditions, particularly in the tradition of Buddhism and uh, Hinduism, Jainism, uh, Sikhism of Ahimsa, Many of you know the word from Martin Luther King or Gandhi. It is the ancient Indian idea of non-harm. It is the spiritual idea. It comes from Sanskrit, and it's this ancient principle in India about non-violence and non-harm as a way of life and as the foundation for all spiritual practice. This ahimsa is essentially what we're talking about in the teachings of the Buddha. We go beyond an interest in just harmless action and we are really looking at intending to be a non-violent, harmless, blameless being as we walk through the world to our greatest ability. We always seek less harm when possible. This idea comes from this ancient belief that all of us are composed of the same spiritual energy, that we all are in a sense one, and that this energy 
that we have, we share this spiritual life force, whatever you would like to call it. And because of that, to harm another being is ultimately to harm ourselves. So this commitment to non-harm is also a commitment to ourselves and to all beings. So this in the loving kindness phrases, may all beings be free, comes back to this idea that we are all interconnected in this life experience and that all life should be respected and honored as such. Again, you might have heard this concept. It was really popularized by Gandhi, of course, in his activist work and certainly uh, picked up on and advocated by Martin Luther King Jr. This idea of non-harm and non-violence. So we begin the path with this idea of non-harm. And that's another thing to remember is that it's not like we do the meditation and then we start non-harming. We actually begin by a commitment to show up in the world as beings that are interested in living a blameless and harmless life and a life that's oriented towards other. And we start there and then from there we build the path around this spirit or this energy. I wanted to read a quote by Fleischmann from this article I read. It's a little long, but it's just, I could not not read it to you tonight because it's just great. It really describes this so beautifully. This is what he has to say about this general idea of non-harm in the Dharma. And he says this, In order to see oneself, to know oneself, to experience one's own true nature, one must focus observation repeatedly, <laughs> repeatedly, continuously, as a lifetime of practice. This is a lifestyle of awareness, meditation, and observation. This lifestyle requires open-mindedness, hence the Buddha's emphasis on freedom from rigid beliefs. But the path also requires patience, calm, and integrity. To make mindful observations of oneself as a way of life, one needs a steady, calm, focused mind. This can only be obtained when honesty, harmony, modesty, and sincerity are already adhered to. It is for this reason that whenever the Buddha taught the Dharma, he started with the five moral precepts, not to steal, lie, use intoxicants, or commit sexual misconduct, and of course, not to kill. Nonviolence is actually a prerequisite to and the first step of the Buddha's teachings. It appears not as a belief, but as a practical necessity to the intentional and aware path of the Dharma itself. Initially, for the student of the Buddha, nonviolence is a psychological necessity for spiritual self development. It's a psychological necessity. So we begin with this intention of non-harm. We begin by walking in the world and deciding to show up with someone who is soft, graceful, and at ease. To not only heal ourselves, but to be an avenue where light can come into the world. So we can show up with the energy necessary to heal others. Even though we begin with this intention of non-harming, even though we begin, as you know, when we do retreats, we start with our precepts. It is the framework for the meditative experience. Now, when you take it practically speaking, when we begin the path, we take the precepts, but since we're just starting on the path, we have to be honest, it's kind of a faith walk. We're taking the precepts with the understanding 
that we are going to grow in them, that we're going to learn from them, and that the depth of our knowledge of the precepts will continue to expand over time. So what happens is we begin by taking the precepts. Those precepts calm the mind and open the heart. And with that calm mind and open-heartedness, we then begin to have insights into the nature of the precepts themselves. We begin to understand the nature of compassion, of nonviolence, of non-harm. So the discernment of the power of taking the precepts begins to unfold only after we begin engaging in the other folds of the path. But we take the precepts in the beginning as a compass or a GPS, if you will, an attitudinal orientation to life itself with the understanding that we will grow in depth of practice as we move through our year-to-year meditation. Another thing to remember is that we're not expecting to be perfect with our precepts. Our precepts are practices. They're invitations for self-reflection. If we just take them blindly, there's not much room for work. Most of us really want to have a prescriptive way of living. We just want to know, give me the list of things to do, Give me the list of things not to do so I can know that I'm a good person. And as much as I would love to be able to have that for myself, the fact is it's a path of practice and we have to figure this out. There are no real pat statements of this is wrong, this is right. There are general guidelines for good living, for compassionate living, for wakeful living, but we still have to do the work. We have to understand that our experience will just deepen over time as mindfulness deepens. I wanted to offer a couple sets of quotes so you can hear from the texts themselves, from the teachings themselves, how the Buddha commented based on questions from students about non-harming and non-violence. And you'll begin to see that what the Buddha was looking for was for students to understand that there is an ideal for us to be awakened, which includes a significant commitment to our precepts, but he also understood that relative to our lives and what we're doing in them, we may have to bend these precepts just in order to live or to survive. So the Buddha understood that precepts had to be pragmatic. They had to work within our actual human existence. We can't just throw up a lofty ideal of being a good person and then expect life to just adapt to the precepts. We have to practice them in real life circumstances and grow in situations that are very challenging and confronting and disconcerting for us. We push ourselves to grow in the precepts with an understanding that there's an idealized version of them, but it's also very clear that the Buddha thought that there was a pragmatic part of this as well. And I'm going to highlight this for you. The first one I wanted to mention, which is one that often gets talked about in Dharma talks, but also Uh, particularly up here in the Pacific Northwest, this is vegetarianism, the idea of not harming animals. This is a big question in Buddhist circles. And again, there isn't a right answer to it, but I am going to tell you what the Buddhist code is and why the Buddha said this. So in the context of monastics, Buddhists could not, the Buddhist monks, could not touch or handle money. So they're not going to buy food. Their food was completely a gift from the community. So their survival was based on the generosity and kindness of the surrounding citizens or community members. So when they went out with their begging bowl, 
the code of the Dharma, I might say organization, that would be a modern word, the, the, the uh, code of the community, of the monastic community, was that you take whatever is given in the bowl. It doesn't matter if you don't like it or you're not in the mood for it. You just take what the gift is because that gift is what you need to survive. So that's the base of the code. But the problem was is that there's another code in the Dharma, which is non-harm. And harming animals is included. The Buddha said not to kill animals or to encourage the killing of animals. And yet the monks were not vegetarians. They ate meat if meat appeared in their begging bowls. So what this tells us, and this is a prime example of this, is the Buddha had this pragmatic balance between the two precepts. So ultimately, what the Buddha said to the monks was, okay, you're not going to kill animals intentionally. You are not going to support the killing of animals intentionally. You certainly are not going to allow someone to kill an animal and then put that meat into your bowl because they'd be killing on your behalf. However, he said, if there's just leftover meat that's coming from the household and it's being offered as a gift, you take the gift. Because taking the gift from the household that is offering that generosity is less harmful than the eating of the meat. So you see here, not an easy decision to make, but this is the way they worked it out. There was a combination of the highest ideal would be to have vegetarianism, and yet the, Buddha, the Buddhist monks were not vegetarians because often meat was served. We see this balance between pragmatism and this highest ideal of non-harm when we talk about violence, violence and war. During the time of the Buddha, war was a way of life, right? War was common, happened all the time. The Buddha was from a warrior caste, so he would have been trained as a soldier or warrior, if you will. And the Buddha had ongoing relationships with several kings. I know you, most of you have heard of uh, Bimbisara and Pasenadi, these two kings that the Buddha had relationships with. And he didn't consult them as like an advisor, but he, they would come to him for advice, but not necessarily political advice. But there's many, many suttas of uh, the Buddha consulting with kings. And these kings had standing armies, and oftentimes they were at war. And so the Buddha had opportunities to talk about violence and talk about war in this context. Now, of course, we have to decide for ourselves how much this is applicable to contemporary times. But I think it's interesting for you to hear what the Buddha actually says. So first and foremost, the Buddha said the highest ideal is to not have war. <laughs> okay, so of course, the highest ideal is not going to war in the first place. And he acknowledges that. He's like, look, the best thing, he actually says somewhere that it would be great if kings could be pacifists. But he said that's unlikely for his time. So he knew that kings were involved in killing and executing. And he understood that pacifism for these kings would have been the greatest and highest ideal. But he also told kings that he understood that as kings, they had to protect the communities. And they protected the communities with armies, and these armies killed other beings. So the Buddha was very open about this acknowledgement. There's this famous moment where 
who knows to what degree this is true, but it's a great story. Uh, the Buddha and King Pasenadi are older folks. They're like in their 80s and they're talking and the Buddha's giving a, doc, a talk to the monks and King Pasenadi is there and King Pasenadi compliments the monks and he compliments them by saying that he admires their commitment to nonviolence, that he acknowledges their high ideals and understands the virtue and the benefit of that and the ability to live a life of nonviolence. And then he refers to himself and says, you know, I am an anointed warrior king and I've had to execute people who needed to be executed. And he says this to the monks. And when King Pasenadi leaves, the Buddha tells the monks that those words that King Pasenadi spoke are words of Dharma. Words of Dharma to be remembered. Words of Dharma to be remembered. And what he means by that is that King Pasenadi was able to see, look, the highest ideal is, of course, absolutely not harming other beings. But there are circumstances, either culturally, historically, or personally, where you're going to be in a situation where you may have to harm, whether it be in self-defense or to protect somebody else. And the Buddha is acknowledging the spiritual wisdom of honoring that fact. And we see this kind of balance in his teachings throughout his discussions on ethics. He basically says, look, there's going to be times where harm is going to happen. It's not like you want it. And it's not like doing that harm is still going to allow you to even be enlightened. But we have to acknowledge that there are times in our lives where we're going to kill the ants on the counter, even though we may not want to. Or there's a insect or a bee or something like that. And we end up doing harm, even though our ideal is not to. Now, in this case, we're talking human lives. And again, the Buddha honored the spiritual wisdom, but still maintaining the ideal, which is non-harm at the absolute level. I'll give you another example. It wasn't uncommon for soldiers to ask the Buddha, can I get enlightened? I'm a soldier in the king's army. I really want to practice the Dharma. Can I get enlightened? <laughs> Good news, bad news. The Buddha was like, as long as you're killing, no, <laughs> you're not going to be able to get enlightened because the heart can't be in the space where there's that kind of harm being done. The Buddha also said, if you have chosen to be the soldier to protect the community, then you have to honor that duty to be the soldier. You accept that that's the karma in this life, that that is what you are going to be doing. And here's an example of what he says to a soldier. Soldier asks about violence and karma, essentially. And the Buddha responds like this. He says, can you do this task as an upholder of safety and justice, focused on love of those you protect rather than on the hate for those you must kill? If you are acting with vengeance or delight in destruction, then you are not at all a student of the Dharma. But if this hard job you must do can be done with a base of pure mind, while you are clearly not living the life of an enlightened person, you are still able to walk the path towards harmony and compassion. You are still able to walk a path towards harmony and compassion, though you're not clearly living a life of an enlightened person. 
So again, what we see here is the Buddha doesn't even invite the soldier not to engage in the violence. He tells the soldier, look, if you are in this army as a protective measure and in your action as a soldier, your heart is open to the love of protection, not the delusion of hate, then you still are working towards enlightenment. You are still working in a positive direction. But you can't expect enlightenment if you're killing human beings actively, no matter what the reason. It's a very interesting dichotomy that the Buddha lays down here. It's not black and white. It's not simple. He has a pragmatic approach to talking to people about harm and harming others. Now, here's a contrasting quote, which is another one. Now, this quote is specifically said to advanced meditation students who have, or monastics, who are completely committed to the precept of non-harm. So for these students, he says this, even if bandits brutally severed him limb from limb with a two-handled saw, <laughs> I laugh because I, the two-handled saw must mean that it's more intense, with a two-handled saw, he who has entertained hate in his heart on that account would not be one who followed my teachings. He who entertained hate in his heart on that account would not be one who followed my teachings. So again, in this case, the Buddha is saying, if you are at the highest levels of practice and someone is really harming you, obviously there's this exaggerated example of being severed limb from limb. He is saying equanimity, compassion, right? And love should still be the name of the game, even as you're being injured. So again, we see this other side of the Buddha talking about harm and harmlessness. There is this balance between this ideal of ahimsa, which is I will walk in the world as a being that is committed to a blameless life. And then the practical instigation of this commitment in our daily activities. Now, again, most of us in this case are not soldiers, are not at war. But what it calls to the heart for me personally is the reminder that at some point we might be in a situation like that. We might be, we don't know how we would show up if we were starving or if our family was being attacked or if our country was actually at war on our soil. We don't really know how we, how we would respond. What the Buddha is suggesting is that you maintain the practice inside. You still maintain that attitude of nonviolence and non-harm, even in situations where you may have to do that. And when you do it, the Buddha says, Look, enlightenment requires that that not be done. But even in those moments where you're either being harmed or you have to do some kind of harm, that you minimally focus on love, compassion, equanimity, not on hate, anger, and revenge. So the quality of the mind and the heart is also hugely important in Buddhist ethics. It's not just about the action in and of itself. It's also about the inner harm that comes from the qualities of heart and mind, particularly, are we still maintaining a foothold in the factors of awakening? I wanted to read another quote by Fleischmann here, which again, I find to be a really awesome overview of this idea. I really wish I had this article like years ago when I was both studying this and teaching it. 
Fleischman says this, The student of the Dharma seeks the least harm at all times. Realistically, as a surgeon, she may have to incise her patient's body, or as a policeman, arrest an armed assailant, or as a teacher, discipline an unruly student. Realistically, in the ambiguous rough-and-tumble of householder life and public living, the student of Dharma may need to call upon difficult decisions, unpopular stances, and unflattering sentences. And he or she will be called upon also to recognize the complexity and ambiguity that rests on the shoulders of those who have positioned themselves to make decisions in a world of turmoil and suffering. But the lifelong devotee of the Dharma understands that in the end, the goal of every moment is to generate empathy and compassion while minimizing anger and hate. Minimizing anger and hate. So again, the balance of an idealized goal of non-harming combined with the practicality of human experience. It's tough. It's tough. No easy answers, of course. A few things I wanted to remind us as an overview of this attitudinal orientation to compassion. As I said in the beginning, the compass of the heart, our GPS, is always directed towards non-harm. And that alone is personally transforming. Because at least if we can start there, then we can ask questions. In this moment, am I keeping my precept? Can I keep my precept? Is there another way so I can do the least amount of harm? If we don't begin by at least aspiring to it, we don't have a framework or an encouragement when the event occurs where harm might happen. So remember that just the intention to live a life where we encourage nonviolence or non-harm puts us in a position where we can do the best for ourselves and do the best for others. So that in and of itself is a healthy and helpful practice. It's also helpful to remember that harmful actions are not only harmful as actions, but they impact consciousness itself. We don't do harm without harmful mind states, right? We don't usually hurt unless we're hurting. So we have to remember that there's the inner harm and the outer harm, and we're working on both at the same time. We commit to awaken our hearts and to awaken our minds and to learn about our own hurt so we then can step into the world to do less hurt to others. And then separately, we just make the commitment not to engage in particular harmful actions because we know if we do that, our heart and mind will also be healed. So it's a reciprocal and symbiotic process. Again, we remember that the precepts are not prescriptive. There is an ideal, and then there's practicality. The precepts begin as a type of faith walk, and then they end up as an experience, a direct experience with reality, where we begin to say, you know what, I've been behaving in this way, and I'm ready to change it. I'm ready to not have that harm be done into the world. I'm ready to change the way I speak, the way I eat, the way I live, perhaps the way we drive or care for someone or cared for. So we get to this point where we use mindfulness 
to continue to raise the bar and continue to raise the expectation towards this ideal of living a life that's blameless while giving ourselves the opportunity to fall on our face and put our foot in our mouth and trip and stumble over these really big questions of what it is it what is it to be a good person in this world another thing we remind ourselves i'm always surprised when i read about the buddha's teachings on non-harm what you don't what you see the buddha doing is engaging in dialogue with people around harm you don't see the buddha ridiculing or demanding or judging right he engages people and says look there's this high higher ideal you can live up to in this circumstance now you are not living up to it and then he acts as a teacher to the person and i really like that attitude because oftentimes what happens in non-harm is people who take a stand for non-harm then tend to harm others when they talk to them about non-harming so they act in a way that's judgmental they act in a way that's um, hurtful demeaning dehumanizing so we have to be careful that when we say we want to take a stand for non-harm that also means that when we talk to others about the harm they're doing we want to do it in a way where we can connect we want to do it in compassion and we want to do that do it in a way that inspires the person to change the behavior versus a sort of finger wagging you're just a bad person kind of thing and that's really challenging <laughs> that is super super challenging but it's one thing i really see in the buddhist teachings it's not only that he said specifically you should speak out on behalf of people you should not encourage harm but let's also do that in a harmless way let's do that as well in a way that builds connectivity community and is rooted in compassion rather than shame and guilt and blame and a type of verbal violence if you will so that's also a really important thing to remember about non-harm again the buddha really was open and clear about the fact that the world is not black and white there's going to be context to the moments where you have to make ethical decisions I really hate it every year in the spring when the ants come into my house. It is so annoying. And it's not annoying because they're in my house. It's annoying because I have to break my precepts every spring when they're all over my kitchen counter. And I really don't like that because, you know, I just I don't want to kill them. And I always like have this little talk with them. It's like, I really don't want to kill you, but you cannot be all over my food. And so these are and I know that's just such a. That's an inane, relatively speaking, ethical decision. That's not a big ethical decision where a human life or, you know, large scale harm is at the balance. But it's just a reminder to myself, like, look, we're making these decisions and they're not going to be easy. How we participate in a world that's filled with suffering, filled with systems of oppression, filled with people who are harming ourselves included. How do we hold this whole space and love and compassion you know this is really the big question but the buddha does say look it's not black and white and hopefully that allows you some room to grow and explore and investigate these questions for yourself last thing i wanted to mention about non-harm from one perspective if we look at the path one might say that the very act of clinging and craving right clinging and craving the buddha say are some of the foundations of suffering 
that clinging and craving are actually an act of violence. It's an act of violence because we cling and crave because we want the world to be permanent, and it is not. We cling and crave to our identity because we want it to be solid and real and permanent, but it simply isn't. We cling and crave because we want the world to be a particular way. We're trying to force the world to be something that it isn't. So in this way, the Dharma, at its heart, again, is nonviolent because it encourages us to let go and allow the world to be the truth that it is, to allow the self to be the truth that it is. So nonviolence, this commitment to non-harm is from the ground up in the Dharma. At some point, we have to frame our practice within the context of this concept of love, kindness, and compassion. And I'll just conclude with one quote from the Buddha. There's this lovely quote that the Buddha says when he was asked about the relationship between killing and compassion. And the Buddha says this, Love all so that you may not wish to kill any. Love all so that you may not wish to kill any. Our good friend the Buddha. Non-harming. This is a tough one. <laughs> the Buddha, I'll say this as well, the Buddha talks about tilling the soil for farming. And a student had asked, you know, about the violence. And the Buddha says, yeah, when we, when we farm the fields, we're, we're hurting organisms, right? The Buddha actually was at least awake and, and aware to even the harm of uh, seeds and plants, there is a passage somewhere, I couldn't find it, but I know there's a passage in the Dharma where the Buddha says, you know, when you can, don't be stepping on flowers or crushing seeds. I mean, he just had this reverence for life itself, this attitudinal awareness, even though that there was an ideal and he understood the pragmatics of human beings living in a world of conflict and needing to protect ourselves and also needing to be safe and secure, but also wanting liberation and to aspire to a higher way of being. It is very evident in the Dharma that monks throughout history history have uh, sacrificed their lives before breaking their precepts. They have, under certain circumstances, offered their life because they did not want to break their vows, and that was considered noble. And again, each person has their own way of dealing with these commitments to being harmless, but there are evidence of that and it's just amazing that human beings aspire in that way to me so i wish us all the ability to grow in blamelessness but grow in a way where we can love ourselves while we explore it that we can help others to grow and that we don't shame ourselves and we don't ridicule ourselves and we give ourselves the room to really honor our humanity as we try to become better people, as we try to become kind and loving, that we remind ourselves to be loving and kind to ourselves on the path of blamelessness. So that is my wish for you this evening, my lovely friends, as we come to an end of our talk tonight. Let's end on time this evening. I'm going to just send you away with that quote from the Buddha. Love all so that you may not wish to kill any. Love all. Let's do some meta, my friends, and offer some loving kindness, our highest aspiration, to all beings. 
Let's fall back into the body and the breath. Let us get in touch with our basic humanity here for a moment or two. Thank you so much for the generosity of your minds and hearts this evening coming together in community. An act of generosity Let us support each other and inspire each other on this path towards love, kindness, and compassion. Let us first and foremost love ourselves and love each other. Support each other as we offer the wish of kindness and compassion to all beings, this highest aspiration of freedom May all beings be free from suffering in this lifetime. May all beings know true joy, true love, true kindness in this life. May all beings be free from harm, be safe and secure, be free to love and be loved. May all beings have the privilege of being able to take precepts and to keep them in this life. May all beings know the privilege of living a life of nonviolence and non-harm. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. Let us take the advice of the Buddha. Let us love all. Let us love all. So that we may not wish to kill or harm any. Thank you so much for choosing to spend the evening with us. May you be safe and at ease. We will see you next week. Thanks so much for coming, guys. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. 
Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.